I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers' House in our Wexler studio by Anna Strong, whose poetry and fiction have appeared in the Pen Review, Cleaver Magazine, the Pennsylvania Gazette, Peregrine, Poems for the Writing, and elsewhere, who has been a teaching assistant in the non-credit open online course on modern and contemporary U.S. poetry called ModPo for five years now, and is currently the coordinator of that project and is also currently in the MFA program at Temple University. And by Ariel Resnikoff, poet, translator, editor, whose chapbook Between Studies was published by Materialist Press and whose poems from a new collection called Avoidances, is that the title, have been featured by Jerome Rothenberg in Jacket 2, and who, with Stephen Ross, has translated into English the modernist Yiddish poems of Michael Licht. How did I pronounce that this time? A little better? Better every time. Okay. And who coordinates the multilingual poetics talks reading series here at the Kelly Writers House. And by, I'm glad to say, Pierre Joris, who has moved between the U.S., Europe, and North Africa for 50-plus years. I threw the plus in there. Uh, and published more than 40 books of poetry, essays, and translations whose important work has been wonderfully examined in cartographies of the in-between, the poetry and poetics of Pierre Joris, edited by Peter Kockelberg, whose uh, very recent work includes The Agony of I.B., a play commissioned and produced in June of 2016, and an American suite, Early Poems, published by Inpatient Press, also in 2016, and who, I'm glad to say, has visited the Kelly Writers House a number of times over the years, including for a December 2013 session in which Pierre and I co-led a really fun and interesting, well, fun's not quite the right word, interesting discussion of Paul Ceylon's poetry with a special focus on the poet's response to the genocide of Europe's Jews. Thank you, Pierre, for coming back, for returning to us. Thank you, Al. It's a great pleasure to be here. With the remarkable Nicole Perifit, who's here about 100 feet from here making crepes in the kitchen of the writer's house. And it's great to see you. Anna, hello. Hi, Al. Hey. It's nice to see you in the studio. Oh, it's great to be here. You're here at the writer's house all the time, but this is your first poem talk, I think. I'm not nervous at all. Good. There's no reason because you're amazing. <laughs> we'll see. I'm nervous about how amazing you are. Um, Ariel, good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, it's, this, is, this is fun. We are here today to talk about a poem by the aforementioned Paul Ceylon. How is it aforementioned? Oh, yes. You and I co-led a discussion about Ceylon here. Uh, and the poem we've picked is Corona. Uh, Ceylon, of course, wrote in German. So this, in this English language podcast series, Poem Talk, we'll be discussing the in English translation of the poem and uh, referring to the German on occasion. And this presents some challenges, some of which at least we hope we will overcome by uh, the presence of the very person who arranged for the translating in the case of Corona soliciting or getting uh, Jerome Rothenberg to agree to use an earlier translation that he had done. And many of the others in this book were done by Pierre himself. 
Uh, and it's from the wonderful Paul Ceylon Selections. We draw our English versions for all of uh, the Ceylon poems we talk about here at the Writer's House from this amazing book. Uh, the translation of Corona we'll use, as I mentioned, was done by Jerome Rothenberg back in 1958-59 for a book that public, was published in 1959 called New Young German Poets, published by City Lights. Uh, and by the way, uh, Paul Ceylon selection was published by California in a beautiful edited edition. I highly recommend it. And um, it happens that we have recordings of Ceylon performing this poem in German. So we will hear Ceylon read it, and then I've asked Pierre to read Jerry Rothenberg's translation of Corona. So here now first is the long-gone and much-missed Paul Ceylon reading our poem. Corona Aus der Hand frisst der Herbst mir sein Blatt. Wir sind Freunde. Wir schälen die Zeit aus den Nüssen und lehren sie gehen. Die Zeit kehrt zurück in die Schale. Im Spiegel ist Sonntag, im Traum wird geschlafen, der Mund redet wahr. Mein Aug steigt hinab zum Geschlecht der Geliebten, wir sehen uns an, wir sagen uns Dunkles, wir lieben einander wie Mohn und Gedächtnis. Wir schlafen wie Wein in den Muscheln, wie das Meer im Blutstrahl des Mondes. Wir stehen umschlungen im Fenster, sie sehen uns zu von der Straße. Es ist Zeit, dass man weiß. Es ist Zeit, dass der Stein sich zum Blühen bequemt, dass der Unrast ein Herz schlägt. Es ist Zeit, dass es Zeit wird. Es ist Zeit. Corona. Autumn is eating a leaf from my hand. We are friends. We are picking time out of a nut. We teach it to run. And time rushes back to its shell. In the mirror, it's Sunday. In dreams, people sleep. The mouth tells the truth. My eye descends to the sex of my loved one. We gaze at each other. We whisper out darkness. We love one another like poppies and memory. We sleep like wine in a seashell, like the sea in the moon's bloody rays. Embracing, we stand by the window, and people look up from the street. It is time that they knew. It is time that the stone grew accustomed to blooming, that unrest formed a heart. It is time. It was time. It is time. Uh, for people who have read a lot of Paul Ceylon, the trope of a leaf blowing in or the wind blowing in often from the east uh, is a familiar one. In this case, Ariel, we have a leaf falling into an open hand. Can we just start there? Why is that so striking? What's What's happening there? There's a way in which... We start with uh, something which seems as though it would be quite familiar, a season, uh, an object of that season which we sort of know the image of. And there's a... And there's because of autumnal, re seasonal return. A seasonal return. Mm -hmm. 
the 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 color immediately I think comes out to us in that first and and then there's this coming together we are friends uh, and fast after that we begin to move in this spiral outward away from whatever hope for that familiar there was at the in that first line Pierre wir sind Freunde so is it, in German is the, does it maintain the context we know from English that like this is a familiarity Yes, there is a familiarity in it. Um, I would immediately say something about autumn. Autumn is a very loaded word for Ceylon. It is always connected to the season in which his parents were killed. This poem was written in Vienna, and he was in Vienna from December 47 to June 48. So it is not written in season. It is you know, some, something else is, is, is going on. The leaf, as in German, das Blatt, is as much the leaf from the tree as it is the leaf of the poem. Uh, the, the, the page. The page. So, I mean, in Ceylon, every word is, has that is, incredible... It is not a pun in German. It is referring to the leaf. To both. Literally. To both, okay. Like, uh, so like, it is a pun. It is a pun, if you want. Or simply what I would call, uh, I've called that somewhere, the... Uh, the polysemy, the fearful polysemy in uh, uh, Ceylon that every word has these layers and layers and layers of meanings. And uh, One word that translates troubledly, eat, in German is frist. And fressen, you usually use of animals so that you yeah, may like get a, in German like the image of the dog yeah. or the yeah. friend, uh, right. the dog or an animal uh, right. eating it out of his hand the way you feed a leaf to an animal. Um, yes, Pr Primo Levi in uh, Survival in Auschwitz, though it's written in Italian and we're reading, we read it in translation in English, it retains the fressen in quotes as a linguistic oddity at Auschwitz. We didn't eat, we, we did, we, we fressed as it were. I would say that there is something, I think especially when I was looking at the original German, when I saw that fressen, um, I saw something kind of um, sinister in there. Um, in, in the English translation, it's a beautiful, beautiful translation, but eating is somehow a little bit more innocent, um, and we don't necessarily get that estrangement that I think Ariel was talking about, um, the sense that there's something unfamiliar here. I like the idiom that Jerry Rothenberg found here, eating from my hand, which in English refers to a kind of um, a lure, a kind of a trap almost, uh, and a subservience. At my disposal, in a sense. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, Ariel, what do you make of this mixed metaphor in the second line? In English, we are picking time out of a nut. We teach it to run. This doesn't make any sense, does it? It's funny because uh, I always have this sort of double vision in reading Salon because uh, I always hear these Kabbalistic traces coming through, even though it's not clear to me how Ceylon meant them or if he was thinking about these things. But the nut and the shell are these two very uh, important Kabbalistic symbols in, in Hebrew. Uh, it's the klipa and the toch, literally the surface and the interior. Uh, and there's this sort of pulling apart and, and combusting back together here, this picking out and then, and then running back. Pierre, I, I want to do something weird now, which is to skip the sexy stuff just temporarily, and go to the thing that this poem is remembered for, I think, which is the unexplained it. 
um, it is time that that they knew. And I know it's sort of a punchline, and why would we do it so early in the conversation, but can you help us understand how a poet could say it is time that they knew and then not tell us what it is that they should know? I'm not certain how this, um, if you can go at it that way. I think, you know, the poem moves from the memory thing into his very present in that stanza that we jumped over. <laughs> it is time, as a side, is a kind of a very, um, I think, relatively rare in Ceylon, a, a sort of command. I mean, they're usually more hidden. It is time now to get up and get going. Uh, I think we need to, to situate the poem historically in its writing. You know, it is written during those six months once he escaped from the closing iron curtain out of Romania, went to Vienna, and Vienna was very dark at that moment. The third man, that's the Vienna he was in, and he couldn't take it and went to, to, to Paris. But this is a poem, and we'll come to that in a way, but it is a love poem, profoundly. And he says, it is time to get on with it. It is time. It is time that it becomes time. It is time for it to be the time of getting on with things. So it's in, I read it as a very positive poem. So it is time that you make time and create your own history, your own story. It's, it's fascinating because what I hear and what I've always heard in this poem, and I hear it as much from Jerry as I do from Ceylon, is there's an old um, Yiddish folk song uh, which was common and and well known before Salon's time, and I'm almost certain he would have known it. And it goes, "Die Zeit, die Zeit, es läuft mir. The time leaves me. Ich es läuft mich schon die Zeit. I move the time now. Meaning the time is leaving, but I am leaving with the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, what a great analog. I agree with Pierre about this being a love poem and being a let's get on with it. It is time to get on with it. And what's so great about it, Anna, is that the stuckness that we know from the earlier poems, it's autumn and I'm never going to get out of this memory of your loss, mama. I'm never going to get, and I'm never going to be able to leave my mother tongue. And of course, in Vienna, he doesn't have to leave the mother tongue because everybody around him is speaking German. It's only when he moves to Paris that he retains the mother tongue and is surrounded by and makes a choice not to write in French famously. And there's a lot to talk about that. But... He's saying, I, he and the lover, and we'll get back to the lover, stand in the window, uh, a post-coital, one imagines, a great moment, and then sees the people below, people below in the street and has something to tell them. So the positive read is something like, this is good, I'm in love, I have a body, I survived, I, I don't need the memory of the bad things. But of course we don't have what he says but we don't know what he says so how do you want you want to work on that a little bit uh no because it's sad <laughs> what's sad um i don't know i don't know pierre if i can read this poem as as positively as you just did maybe you can hopefully you can convince me um i find this totally heartbreaking because um he's, why are the people looking up at the street and i'm sorry to interrupt why are they looking up are they expecting him to have some wisdom for them maybe maybe they're expecting a uh, kind of a moment of happiness you know i don't know um it's a time it's a dark time as pierre reminds us in vienna and maybe they're looking for some kind of maybe what he's been through is an answer for them or looking for a a return to art you know in a time when you know we weren't making a whole lot of that 
Um, but the, the it is time that they knew. It is time. This it um, is just weighing on me so much. It's this, it's this unsaid and perhaps unsayable it. Umschlungen functions as an adverb. And because Jerry's translating from German into English, the adverb gets to move around. And it starts the line. Pierre, embracing we stand, but another option would be we stand embracing in im fenster, in, in, in the window. Uh, do we, do translators really need to work on, I mean, wh what are your thoughts about that as an example? Umschlungen is such an interesting word coming there, isn't it? It is, it is. Uh, I always like to keep the words in the same place and Ceylon put them in a line, uh, even if that sometimes gives the English a kind of awkward sense to it. But I never mind that in the sense that I'd like to translate Ceylon, not accurate German, uh, you know, and I want the poem to read, oh, this is a translation. There's a 100% chance that Jerry Rothenberg will be listening to this podcast. However, <laughs> however, he does not, he does not feel ownership of a translation that is now 65 years old. Yeah. So do you want to offer an alternative at the be for the beginning of that line? Well, we, we, we embrace ourselves. Um, you know, we're standing together. We're standing linked. And I think we have to go there to who he is standing with. And that is Ingeborg Bachmann, whom he's having an affair so he's with. So this is the affair with Bachmann. Yes, this is, this is Bachmann. This happens in the spring of uh, 48. So the non-Jewish Austrian... Voila. Hmm. What I have to say is that we still can um, somewhere be together. There is that that in there. And I can't, I cannot not also um, hear, there are a number of, of things here that, that get very complicated. You can go to the title, Corona. A crown, you, yeah. A crown. If you go to the first poem of Monin Gedeshnis, uh, which is set in the desert, it starts with Krona. It starts with an, a, a crown made of black Black flower, something like that. So here we have a different crown that, that comes in, you know. But corona is so much more. It is also, corona also means a fermata, you know, a musical, the musical pause that you put on, on top of things. Uh, Otto Pergler, the philosopher, saw the corona also as the shape of the crowd beneath the window, a semicircle, you know. <laughs> and uh, Corona is also the name of the aura that you see around the sun, right? Anna and Ariel, following from what Pierre just said, I, all I can think about as these lovers, the Jewish survivor and his younger uh, anti-fascist or post-fascist uh, non-Jewish Austrian uh, who has her own complicated relationship to the culture around her that went for Nazism in Austria big time. Her father was a Nazi. And her father was a Nazi. And, of course, Austria, if you polled, if you polled people in the early 50s about Jews, they probably have the same attitudes, even more so probably than in Germany, which had been somewhat denazified. If you polled them today. And if you polled them today, I mean, I think, who was it, Kurt Waldheim? He was, you know, let's, let's go for it. And that was, what, in the late 80s or something like that. So all I can think of as these two... Two lovers stand in the window is a kind of balcony scene in fascist Austria as the people are looking for a message 
almost and the corona, the formation of the crowd, almost it's almost as if they're crowning these two to like whatever whatever you have to say to us, now's your chance, Paul. Say it. It's like a royal announcement, you know, coming up from, you know, five stories up. The the royal so, couple walking out, you know what I mean? It like, can also be the crown that becomes nearly a mandola around the two as they stand up sure. there in the form that Dum Shlong and, and Mandorla, another poem, has a king in it. That is the Christ King because it goes directly that to a Christian Burgundy church that Ceylon uh, got that image from, despite its Jewish uh, origin in. in and, and that poem is Mandorla, M-A-N-D-O-R-L-A. So, Ariel, one more time. It is time they knew what? Because this is obviously an open question, but... The other... the other You're going to avoid that, not you? Well, I always avoid. Avoiding <laughs> is all I can, all I can hope for. Uh, <laughs> but, but the other vibration, the other resonance, the other inner text, which is actually comes much later than Salon that I think of, in, in two cases, one is Terence Dupre uh, and the way in which Terence Dupre thinks about time in his book, The Survivor. And the other is in Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, the, the barber of Treblinka, who also says, you know, all there was, you know, a little more time, he says. Abraham Bamba. Abraham Bamba. So before we go back to that middle stanza, Anna, um, here's your chance to push back against Pierre's reading again, if you like. It is time that the stone grew accustomed to blooming. There is a very positive therapeutic reading of that. But there's also a kind of sad reading of it, like, because he's going to have to get used to the fact that he's a, emotionally a stone, you know, because his parents got taken from him. And he, we're going to have to get used to the fact that blooming can happen, but it can only happen in this instance from a stone. Do you want to comment on that? No, it can only happen in the poem, you know. In poems. In poems. Except that the scene, the love scene seems to be coming from life. It's this respite. It's this moment of of relief, I think. Um, yeah, I found myself thinking of Dupre as well um, in, the, in the insistence on time, um, especially as it, you know, relates to this, this beautiful um, kind of scene of um, two people together. You know, going back to the first line, the, the return of the news of death, moving into two people kind of being together. It's, you can almost forget um, about that autumnal return of the bad news at the beginning. If Dupre is applicable here, then we have to quote Dupre on time, which is, all things human take time. That supports Pierre's reading that it is time to move on. Time has passed. All right, so let's look at that. Let's look at that middle stanza. I'll, I'll read the tr Jerry Rothenberg's translation, and then we can open it up to the floor. Anybody can comment. My eye descends to the sex of my loved one. We gaze at each other. We whisper out darkness. We love one another like poppies and memory. We sleep like wine in a seashell, like the sea in the moon's bloody rays. Pierre? Thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> uh, how central the poem is, you can tell by the fact that poppies and memory, that expression, becomes the title of the whole volume in which it stands. Uh, another way of seeing how the poem stands is Corona, the, the musical in, uh, thing, and the poem comes just before the Todesfuge. So uh, two musical connotations put in, together here. There is a problem with translating that is nearly irresolvable here. And that is, 
In German it is mein Ei-Aug steigt hinab zum Geschlecht der Geliebten. Das Geschlecht is indeed the sex. But das Geschlecht in German means also the lineage, i.e. the tribe, so that you have that whole complex element here come in. Uh, yes, it is the sex of my loved one, but I'm seeing in a way nearly through it, through the whole lineage, the whole tribe. I'm, I'm, I'm again in history here. There's this in time here. It is a time element. Wow. And if we're doing the autobiographical reading, and this is about the affair with Ingeborg Bachmann, then lineage is at issue, isn't it? It is. But I think those are always layers in Ceylon. The richness in Ceylon is that they're all present and unresolvable in that sense, so that you have to read all of them and keep them all simultaneously in mind. So once again, Ariel, just briefly and summarily take us from the first part, the introduction, to this pronouncement awaited by the people through this lovers, love scene. Can you help us understand how we make that turn? We begin in a certain way, I think, uh, we remain the whole time in, with the question of the nut. And we, you know, what is on the inside and what is on the outside? Uh, and I think throughout also we're kept, we're sometimes allowed a little bit to move inside, but for the most part the language actually keeps us out as is often the case in Salon, I find. Everything is sort of... Uh, constantly uh, a reflection of reflection, right? It's in the mirror, it's Sunday. In dreams, people sleep. The mouth tells the truth. Well, what is the mouth telling there? I mean, the mouth is telling us that in the mirror, it's Sunday. What is that, you know? In dreams, people sleep. You know, these are things which, these, these, the, which turn upon themselves, which have backspin. Wir sagen uns Dunkles. Wir lieben einander. Wie Mohn und Gedächtnis. Wir schlafen wie Wein in den Muscheln, wie das Meer im Blutstrahl des Mondes. Wir stehen umschlungen im Fenster, sie sehen uns zu von der Straße. Es ist Zeit, dass man weiß. Es ist Zeit, dass der Stein sich zum Blühen bequemt, dass der Unrast ein Herz schlägt. Es ist Zeit, dass es Zeit wird. Es ist Zeit. Anna, at the end, Jerome Rothenberg decides to take out a comma. Do you want to say something yeah, about he, that, Anna? That, um, in German, that comma um, before the das would be like an introdu- introduction of a subordinate clause. Grammatically, with any time you have a das, you're going to get a subordinate clause. Um, so that comma has to be there. I think Jerry's translation is spot on. Um, what you would the direct I think would be and Pierre can correct me if I'm wrong, um, would be it is time that it was time. I would probably do it. It is time for it to for be, it to be time. time. It is yeah. time for that, it that to be time. That would be, be time. The, the most literally exact to I think to the German. But I yeah. see was is very powerful because it just undoes the present tense of it is time. It was it is time. It was time is a play on the fact that the poem is always making a presence out of an absence and is always going to be present. And it was time that I learned something about what my poems can do for me. Yeah, but it's still backward looking. You see, the Germans said wird. 
And I think here is exactly that's why I'm thinking uh, giving the poem a positive flow for it to become time, not that it is, but the becoming to me, werden, to become is important. As against being, it's the becoming that comes in here. And I would probably, if I translate at this point, you know, bring that in, in that sense, using the clause and so on. Uh, the worst time, as Jerry has it, uh, uh, is to me maybe a bit static I, and looks back to the past. I would want to open the poem up to the future in that sense. What I'd like to do now is to go around twice, briefly though, everybody has to be brief. Um, <laughs> first round, I'd like you to say something about why people should read Paul Ceylon's poetry, even if they don't know the German. And then I'll ask each of us to make one final comment on this poem that we didn't get a chance to say. So, Ariel, what is it about this discussion that people who don't know the Ceylon, who are listening to this podcast and don't know the Ceylon, what should they, what's exciting about finding elsewhere in Ceylon that we've seen here already? I find that in this poem and uh, in many others, you have uh, the double, which I keep coming back to, which is the nut as shell and interior, klipa and toch. You have both at once, but the double is never stable in any sense. It's always a doubling. There's a way in which, uh, as as Pierre said, a, a polysemic way in which the you know a word is gesturing two ways, but each of those two ways then gesture two more ways. That for 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 my enjoyment of difficult poetry, I think Paul Salon is one of the very very best and and most urgent. Terrific, Anna. Uh, read Salon because I've never found another poet who's had to write the impossible in the way that he manages to write the impossible. He proves in his poetry and in, in his um, kind of stripped down syntax in the neologisms that he creates in his, um, in, in a phrase like that the stone grew accustomed to blooming. He proves that language isn't inadequate. It just might be inadequate the way that it arrives to him and that in his poetry, um, he can kind of reconstruct the language that can try to say something to recover what's been lost. Fantastic. Thank you. Pierre, what do you see here that readers will find generally in Ceylon and they can look for it? Well, what I called earlier, that uh, fearful polysemy, fearful as in Blake's. So you're uh, playing on uh, fearful can, symmetry. Uh, yes. Um, one way of putting it in a nearly funny way, uh, like the best of poetry, it is the most ecological uh, you can have in literature because it is so rich in such a small and tight volume. You can reread Ceylon, a Ceylon poem again and again. I have done this for 50 years, certain poems, and I will always find something new, something else, some other, uh, something else happening in it. And the poem reconfigures itself. Tea teaches. That's compelling. I'll add my thought, and then we'll go around for final words. I There's a scene in Primo Levi's The Reawakening, which I think is an underrated book because the other books are so good, we forget this thing. It was written at almost at the exact same time as Jerry, was tra Jerry Rothenberg was translating, 596061. Um and there's a scene in which the people who've come from the camps, who've had terrible loss, uh, are in a Russian POW camp. The Russian's army is sort of hosting these 
displaced people. And the Russians are celebrating the VE Day, what we call VE Day, the end of the war in Europe. And they're all getting, they're dancing and they're getting drunk. And it's a very rough scene. And in the back, uh, some of the men and women, the Jews mostly, survivors of the camps, begin to look at each other for the first time in years or months as potential lovers. They're desirous. And they look at each other and they start to dance in an extremely chaste kind of way. This is not so chaste. This is sex. But, but they're dancing and they remember they are bodies. And it's minimal. It's so primo because he's, he, doesn't want, he doesn't want people jumping on each other and fucking in the back behind the wall. He wants them to be human beings who found each other. And I find there's not a lot of scenes like this in Ceylon, but I find the minimal is the wrong word, the basic remembrance that you are a body here to let free this feeling like the work I'm doing in the poem can cause blooming and can cause me to say, this is the moment I choose that minimal remembering of humanness. We don't think of reading Paul Ceylon poems as the discovery of the sentimental mushiness of discovering your humanity, but yet it's there. Mm. And I think a lot of the poems have that despite the sadness of them. Okay, final words, final thought uh, on this poem that you meant to say but didn't have a chance. Ariel? Uh, I just want to say about this poem and about Ceylon in general, and I guess I'll piggyback from my last comment about why to read Ceylon. Uh, there is in Ceylon a way in which language as a human act stands in trauma but also in, with courage against, in a sense, the physical landscape which stood by as all of the things that took place in Europe during the 20th century took place, including the murder of Ceylon's parents. And the language refuses to run away. It refuses to leave German for any of the other languages Ceylon could have written in. And it stays in the German, but it does not cover up. It takes all of the ripples. It takes all of the trauma. It takes all of the pain and it puts it in so that what you're looking at is something that refused to leave when everything else was told it must. Follow that, Anna Strong. <laughs> I can't. Oh, my God, Ariel. Um, I guess uh, the only thing I'll say is to just bring back to um, Terence Dupre, who we quoted earlier, saying, all things human take time. Um, this poem is so deeply human. Um, it's human in its insistence on speaking and whispering and saying. It's human in its insistence on um, the imaginative capacity, I think, to to make this language do the things that Ceylon makes it do. Um and it's human in this in this belief, I guess. Maybe maybe I can come around to the hope in this poem. I think I think maybe I finally can. Um, I think it is hopeful in in this it's this deeply human belief that we have that if we have enough time, we can recover our humanness. Pierre, hmm. I'm going to go right back into the poem into a word. Mein Aug steigt hinab. Hinabsteigen means to go down, to climb down, which Jerry wonderfully translated with descent. And I think here you could go into another direction if you go with the poem. 
you could go to a descent into hell. You could go to uh, Eurydice and those stories. You can go to the dead of the tribe again so that your Geschlecht there leads, becomes the ladder to go and see the dead again, right? So you always have that doubleness. You know, there is obviously the very lie of lovemaking. And you have at the same time that immediately also entails a descent, you know. Uh, and it is that, that that gives me the, the, you know, the shiver that even today when I read it, there was the shiver that I felt when my high school teacher read the Todes Fugesumi when I was 15. And which really? What, what a high school teacher. Which turned me to poetry. That is the moment in my life where I turned. So. <laughs> wow. Speaking of turns, uh, my final thought has to do with the word Jerry's English, unrest. Uh, what an interesting choice there. Uh, because unrest plays upon the sleeping, the dreaming, and presumably the staying up all night to, to make love. It also obviously refers to, uh, it's double-edged, it refers to the... Uh, displacement, the discomfort, being in German-speaking Vienna, but now at this moment. Uh, unrest refers possibly to the people gathered in the street. Maybe they're not getting what they want from the post-war peace, so-called. Uh, these, were, these were very cold winters. Uh, 46 and 47 were unhappily extremely cold in Italy as well. Uh, so that, so there's unrest, almost breadline kind of unrest, and then there's the unrest of Ceylon's writing, which is never to never to complete a thought, never to say what it is that the people should know, never to go all the way, and always to be stuck in a certain kind of uh, the unrest of a sentence, the unrest of a line, the the discontinuity and the fragmentation and the uh, unrest of a single word that can never be fully explained. So, and to be uh, a stone that gets accustomed to blooming and to find unrest and in that the heart is extremely sad, but also extremely gratifying that he has managed to found a, find a heart somewhere in, in unrest. Okay. So, well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for several of us or all four of us, if we're quick to spread wide our narrow hands, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something or some project or some book going on in the poetry world. So, Ariel Reznikoff, gather some paradise. I'm going to gather two paradises. Uh, the first is actually one you already mentioned, which is Pierre's uh, play, which just came out, The Agony of I.B., uh, which after a af long afternoon with Pierre and a long afternoon of teaching and reading, I then last night went home and read in bed and and loved and highly recommend. Uh, absolutely Speaking wonderful. Speaking of unrest. And very, very, you might start with Corona and then read that. Uh, it's, you know. Now, how is that available to us? Um, you can actually order it from the publisher in Europe. I just did that to find out if it worked. And it uh, worked. And it worked, and it was <laughs> there in eight days. And you can pay with PayPal. Can you give us some keywords for people to search uh, for it? it? Your name and the title. The publisher, probably. Edition Fee. P 
P-H-I. P-H-I. Okay, good. Then we'll get it. And you had a second one? The second one is a, a new journal anthology coming out from Kelly Writer's House uh, and the Creative Writing Department at University of Pennsylvania called Supplement. The first volume is coming out later this month, and uh, you should look around for it. It's uh, work from 65 poets, writers, and artists uh, in, around, connected to the Philadelphia area. Terrific. Thank you. Anna Strong, gather yeah, some paradise. Um, I just want to recommend Ceylon again. Um, maybe that's silly since we just spent so much time talking about him, but um, I do think that um, there, as as Pierre said, um, you can never read enough, and um, there's so much to discover. So I would just recommend if this is your first time hearing anything about his work, um, take a take a dive in. Terrific, Pierre. Okay, on my nomadic travels, uh, I'll bring one book from France that came out last year and that I'm still very much risen that somebody needs to translate. Pascal Quignard, Q-U-I-G-N-A-R-D. Uh, the book is called Critique du Jugement, as in Kant's title. And it is an absolutely the superb... The Critique of Judgment. Uh, critique of Judgment. Uh, it is an absolutely superb essay book. I think Quignard whose novels I don't care for, but his great writing is this fragmentary uh, philosophical meditations. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, we need to get some of that material translated. Fantastic. Uh, the second book, I was in um, Morocco uh, in, in July and spent a day in Casablanca with the Moroccan poet uh, Mustafa Nisabouri, finishing some translations of his work. He worked in the great 50s magazine. That was the first um, magazine that uh, Abdelatif uh, Labi and so on published, uh, the book called Souffle, a very Selanian title, Breath, yes, in the, in the plural. And Isabou is the, last, the, le the least well-known of, of them all. And there will be a book of his poetry, poems, in translation. I only did like... 20, 30 pages of it. Other people are doing too, coming from mind-made books in L.A. sometime at the end of the year or early next year. And he is one of the absolutely superb Moroccan poets of that generation. Can you spell the last name? N-I-S-S-A-B-O-U-R-I. -S Fantastic. I have two recommendations. One is a, an edition in English of the notes and notebooks pertaining to Paul Ceylon's absolutely crucial speech known as the Meridian, presented in October 1960. Pierre Joris made that possible. It's Stanford University Press. <laughs> and it is, I, it, is a, it is a revelation to go through all the notes and to see Ceylon again and again and again, working, working through, trying to figure things out. Uh, just just really remarkable. And the Meridian itself, which has been translated many times, or sometimes, is, is absolutely worth a read and goes along with what we've been saying today. And the second recommendation is The 30th Year, the book of short stories by Ingeborg Bachmann that will blow you away if you want to try to understand what the short fiction version of some of these issues uh, could be. And some of the stories are written, perhaps counterintuitively, from the point of view of a 30-year-old man, uh, Austrian and uh, not Jewish. Interesting. 
Well, that's all the sleeping like wine in a seashell we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration with the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Anna Strong, Ariel Reznikoff, and Pierre Joris. And to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner. Thank you, Zach. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, we'll turn to a performance piece poem by Tracy Morris called Slave Show to Video, a.k.a. Black But Beautiful. And for our conversation about it, I'll be joined by Edwin Torres, Kamara Brown, and Brooke O'Hara. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>